Attorney General Jeff Sessions is trying to make it more difficult for women fleeing domestic Take violence Take it a and step abuse. further by restricting the amount of women that we allow the in the country. Is taking many new steps in the immigration courts to deport people from the Trump United administration States. has announced a new crackdown on immigrant families crossing the border. We're seeking asylum and seeking safety from domestic violence. I don't have a constitutional right to demand here. We have a duty to select people that we believe will be flourish and be law-abiding in our country. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. So Jeff Sessions recently certified the matter of AB to himself in a move some rightly say is reminiscent of Attorney General Ashcroft's certification of matter of RA back in 2001. Both are domestic violence cases, which means that in both cases, respondents want asylum based on a credible fear of domestic violence in their home country. Although it really shouldn't be domestic violence as a valid claim for asylum has been routinely contested, almost winning, almost failing, immigration courts for the past 20 years. So Republicans are peeing the scab again. Why, Paul? Well, I think that uh, what this case is really about is the ground of asylum recognizing uh, domestic violence victims as uh, potentially a particular social group. That's what I think Sessions is really after here. Sessions is a well-known restrictionist. He's made a lot of anti-asylum statements. He's publicly stated that he thinks asylum law is too generous and the system is being expanded beyond the original congressional intent. So this seems like an attempt to redecide established law and impose his restrictionist view. And I might say that's a view that when he was in Congress, never really carried a lot of weight, but as the Attorney General, he now has control over the immigration court system. The real target here appears to be a case called Matter of ARCG, decided by the Board of Immigration Appeals as a precedent back in 2014, which resolved a long-standing dispute going back more than a decade and a half about whether domestic violence victims could be recognized for asylum protection and other protections under the, the immigration laws. And it's pretty telling in this case that neither the DHS nor the private party involved had really asked Sessions to intervene in this case. There was actually a case in which the Board of Immigration Appeals had reversed the immigration judge and returned the case to the judge to grant asylum based on RG. The judge didn't want to do it and had returned the case to the board, but neither the DHS nor the private party nor the board had asked Sessions to intervene. So it seems to me, and I think to most observers, that he was really looking for a case to intervene in the system to re-examine matter of ARCG. And that's probably not going to be good news for primarily women who suffered domestic violence. They seem to be on the hit list. He's going to try and unprotect them. Right, and we'll get into Matter of RG too. But in this episode, I want to focus more on Matter of Kasinga, which was a win for gender-based asylum law, and Matter of RA, which was a domestic violence case that should have followed from Kasinga but didn't. 
Attorney General Ashcroft actually tried to use matter of RA to restrict gender-based asylum claims in 2001, but he was unsuccessful. So, Paul, I'm interested in both how and why these cases played out the way they did and why Ashcroft was unsuccessful in using matter of RA as a vehicle to disqualify domestic violence as a credible fear claim. You ready to get into it? So, Paul, you joined the board around 1995, right? 1990, February 1995. When the board only had three members and you were chairman when a massive hiring was undertaken. So, you had the ability to pick a bunch of your fellow board members. Why didn't you just hire people who would have voted your well, way? All right. I mean, I think that's probably a legitimate criticism, particularly in hindsight and one that probably other people have asked also. Now, I mean, let's be clear. I didn't, the chairman did not make the selection of board members. The board members were selected by the attorney general after getting the input of a lot of different individuals. There never, there wasn't really a totally consistent hiring program. But I suppose within it, I, yeah, why didn't I use my influence to hire all Paul Schmidt clones? I suppose I, I'd done a lot of hiring, but I, I never really considered viewpoint to be a criteria in hiring. I, I suppose you could say that I had a tendency, like a lot of people, to recommend people I was familiar with, my past history with people and quality of their work rather than how I thought they'd vote. That may have been a mistake. And I didn't, I didn't see the board hiring process as necessarily a process of my trying to improve my voting position. So were you upset or just indifferent? How did you feel when people who you had put in a good word for were voting against you? Well, at first it was, I mean, I had to admit that was their job. So they, they were only doing what was in their job and I knew that unlike other jobs where maybe they were obligated to do what I asked them to do. Even when I was chairman, I only had one vote and I didn't have a right to direct anybody's vote or to penalize people for taking votes I didn't agree with. So I was in charge of the organization, but I had the same number of votes as everybody else. And I suppose it was hard for me when I saw people that I respected, that I'd worked with, that I was friends with, that I considered colleagues line up against me week after week. Every two, we had in bank on Tuesdays and the Tuesdays became tough because I sort of knew I was going to go in and be outvoted on issues that were really important to me. A, given the fact that uh, there'd been a, a shift to the right, it was hard to see the board as really becoming a hotbed of, uh, of liberalism in an era when uh, government immigration positions seem to be shifting right. Oh, a hotbed of liberalism, right. I don't think I've heard a hotbed of liberalism and immigration in the same sentence in my life. It's not that long, but still. But let's get into exactly what inbox were like. I kind of want to know what debate on the board looked like. I always like to get to know the physical space because I think it helps me understand it a bit better. And I really and I really can't imagine what the board hearing room looked like the day you actually heard the Kasinga case. 
So please, let's go back in time, Chairman Schmidt, and would you paint me a picture? Well, it was an incredibly packed hearing room. We were sitting in Bank, so all 12 uh, board members, people we don't normally have at oral arguments, like major news networks, congressional staff, lawyers, the academic and advocacy community, and of course, board staff, because it, it was probably the biggest thing that had uh, happened at the board in a long time, and certainly since I'd taken over as chairman. We also had an unusual, unusual lineup of counsel. Rather than the normal appellate counsels, we had the actual general counsel, uh, David Martin, and he was up against, arguing the other side was Karen Musalo, who was a very famous law professor, author, legal scholar. So this was sort of an all-star team of counsel to enlighten us about the situation. Did you feel any particular pressure as chairman to show the board was functioning as a real court? Well, yeah, uh, that was what I was brought in to do. And as a leader, yes, I felt that that was my job to show leadership and to get the board functioning, at least in public, in the manner the public would expect a, a legal body. And particularly with a lot of people watching and, and the press watching. Did the public end up thinking the court held up to the standard set? Yeah, I thought the oral argument went, went well. There were too many board members probably for everybody to ask a lot of questions, but I think we asked enough questions and enough different board members got involved that it showed that we were probing the case from different viewpoints and, and trying to get to the bottom of it. And how about you? How did you feel about the way the board resolved the Kasinga case? Well, I was pretty satisfied with the outcome of Kasenga. It was sort of an example of how justice uh, can be a team project. And even though people might not agree on everything, we can move the system forward. Right. And I don't want to put a damper on that achievement, but you have mentioned to me that it was pretty clear the government's position was pro-granting asylum in that case. One, the attorney general at the time, Attorney General Reno, wanted to see the case argued before the board to General Counsel David Martin, who was arguing for the government, he didn't set his position up against FGM as being a grounds for credible asylum, and he even set up his argument to advance qualifying groups beyond the groups outlined in Kasinga. So I guess, so my question is, how do we know this wasn't just another case of the board following government line? Well, I think that can be true. And I agree that I think one big factor in the Kasinga case was that when David Martin and the Office of General Counsel of DHS filed their brief and stated their position. They basically agreed with Kasenga's counsel that the immigration judge was wrong in rejecting FGM as a basis for persecution. Were there any particular board members who were obviously less excited to make the leaps forward to protecting groups beyond those in the Kasenga case? Well, I'm sure that if you read uh, Judge Philpoo's concurring opinion, he, he sort of takes on that issue. He, uh, he stated a more conservative viewpoint that basically that the board's primary function was really the case-by-case -case adjudication and that when you asked the board to get beyond facts of an individual case or to give guidance for future cases that hadn't come before the board, that was getting into an area of 
legislating that should be done either by Congress or by the policy officials of the department and INS through regulatory rulemaking. So Philpu basically said, we're, look, we're, we're primarily case-by-case adjudicators. As part of that, we have to issue precedents, but we're not necessarily the best body to set forth guidelines. The Philpu Heilman concurring opinion said they probably would have preferred to remand the case to the immigration judge, but for the fact that the DHS and Kasenga's counsel had basically agreed that there should be a recognition of FGM as rising to the level of persecution. At the same time, there was another concurring opinion by board member Lori Rosenberg that said, look, one of the board's most important functions is to provide guidance and consistency for immigration judges. And the way we do that is case-by-case adjudication. But that doesn't mean that our role as providing guidance isn't very important. So sort of, I think Rosenberg sort of saw providing guidance through precedence as the board's primary role, whereas case-by-case adjudication was the vehicle by which you got there. I think Judge Rosenberg, uh, Lori Rosenberg, had said uh, that she thought the board's primary function was give life to the provisions of law and establish agency policy through adjudication. So I think she took a more uh, ambitious view of the board's role. Uh, Phil Pooper probably took a more limited rule. And running beneath all this, I mean, I've often wondered whether the vote would have been the same if David Martin had had not basically agreed with Kasenga's counsel. Down the line, the RA case relating to domestic violence showed what happened when you didn't have a clear position on the part of the policy officials at the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. Because in the past, you've called it like a cover, the fact that Janet Reno was obviously pro-FGM as a qualifying grounds for asylum. But I kind of see it as the board eschewing their own opinions in favor of the party line. So, and, and I think that's a valid, a potentially valid point. I suppose, from my standpoint, when you're in the organization and you're wrapped up in it, it it's harder to see it that way. But I, I think maybe uh, your point has a lot of validity as I look uh, back at it. Maybe it is just variations of uh, uh, the board looking for the sweet spot where they're not going to get burned by the attorney general on, not on sort of very hyper-technical cases, but on major uh, policy issues. And many of the major policy issues, as you know, uh, in law, uh, at the department, at, in the immigration field, relate to asylum law. So I think asylum cases have been particularly significant because they're perceived as having implications beyond the individual case to either uh, let in or keep out significant groups of individuals. So I think the policy implications of asylum decision making are probably uh, greater than in some other areas of immigration law. Yeah, it's high stakes. So it makes sense when administrations want to keep control over the board, but that's why I'm really curious about what happened in the matter of RA, because 
1999, when the case was heard, Janet Reno was still attorney general. And there was technically still a Democratic president, even though Clinton was in a bit of a precarious position at the time. Um, but still, why didn't Matter of RA, which should have neatly followed Kasinga, why did it turn in such a different direction? Well, I wonder that myself. I, I suppose maybe I was a little taken aback by the way RA came out. So if uh, Kasinga was one of the high Kasinga was one of the high points of my career, RA was probably one of the low points, <laughs> and they didn't come that far apart. So in 1999, we had the RA case, and that involved domestic violence. It actually was a case originated in San Francisco. For whatever reason, the government appealed, and this time we didn't really get any help from the INS. And there were some other factors there, that by 1999, we'd had the Clinton impeachment, Republicans were in control of both houses of Congress. There was, there'd been a political shift to the right, something called EDPA, and there were some 1996 amendments to the act called uh, IIRA, which had both imposed additional restrictions, particularly on the exercise of discretion. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee was Lamar Smith, who was a very, uh, took a very conservative position on immigration. He had been critical of some of the board's decisions, did a lot of oversight. I asked a lot of questions about what was going on at the board. And actually, in the 1996 amendments, IRA, one of the board's precedents, a case called Matter of OJO, which had set forth a fairly a generous standard for a discretionary relief called suspension of deportation had been legislatively criticized and actually reversed by statute. Suspension was eliminated and the new relief of cancellation of removal was much more restrictive and much more difficult to get. So I suppose that those things had probably not helped my leadership at the board since I was there when the OJO was issued. I, I think the board, so it probably undercut my leadership to some extent. And I think it probably was a shot across the bow that uh, some of the political powers that be thought that the board was going down perhaps a too liberal path. And I don't think because of the impeachment, I think the Justice Department at that time probably wasn't enthusiastic to get into any more disputes with Congress. So this time, the government argued against the domestic violence victim. I think at that time, there were maybe 15 board members, and it was a split opinion, 10 to 5. And I was in the five board member minority who voted to uphold the immigration judge's ruling granting asylum uh, to a domestic violence victim. But, and the, the opinion, I think, was written by Judge Philp, who had been sort of the conservative voice of caution at the time Kasenga came down. And I think he, in the opinion, he indicated that this was a step too far, uh, this, that this really didn't fit traditional asylum criteria, which I thought was incorrect. And because the board had gotten bigger and we were getting lots of different opinions, 
I think the dissenters made an effort to unite behind one. Your gang of five? Yeah, sort of the gang of five, instead of having several different opinions, uh, we decided to be more strength in numbers. So John Gindelsberger, who'd been a former professor, was a very good writer, very scholarly, wrote the the dissenting opinion in RA that would have upheld the immigration judge's ruling. But from a legal standpoint, I always thought that RA should have been the next logical step after Kasenga, but it looked like Kasenga was going to be the high watermark of the board's effort to protect women who had suffered various forms of violence. How did people respond to the decision in matter of RA? The decision was, of course, very controversial and received a lot of critical comment from the immigration bar and the academic bar. And eventually, it was vacated by Attorney General Reno. Now, I always wondered why she didn't intervene earlier. I mean, she let INS argue the position, the restrictive position, and then when the board agreed with the INS's restrictive position, she vacated the board's decision. That always seemed a little strange, but she didn't reverse it and grant asylum to the respondent. What she did was vacated the board's decision and said that she wanted regulations done on the question of domestic violence, and it really should be worked out in departmental regulations and told the board to hold the decision in RA pending the regulation. So I suppose to that extent, she sort of was lining up with what Judge Philpu had said in his concurring opinion in Kasenga, that if the department wanted to set forth overall guidelines or criteria for various forms of relief, that that was better done through the regulatory process than rather than doing it through board precedent. So this time she chose to do it by regulation. The problem is the regulation was never finalized. (laughs) So the board was holding this decision, waiting for regulations that never were issued. In the meantime, though... Wait, did she think Al Gore was going to win the next election? Boy, I don't know. Maybe. I I, I just don't know. Because what kind of regulations was the department working on? Well, the department was working on regulations. The regulations would have been done probably by the Office of Legal Counsel and the General Counsel of EOR because the board because the board was going to have to adjudicate RA under the regulations. It probably would have been inappropriate to have the board working on the regulations that they were then going to use to adjudicate the case. So the board, and the board wasn't, as Phil Poo said, the board wasn't a regulatory body in terms of issuing regulations except for procedural regulations about where to file an appeal or the board's jurisdiction or the number of board members. And those weren't issued by the director of EOR. Those were issued by the attorney general on the recommendation of the director of EOR. So But for whatever reason, the regulations were never issued. But you can imagine the problem. Cases kept coming up, and now we had no precedent on it. And in fact, I suppose in some of the cases, the judges had applied RA, but now RA had been vacated, but without any regulations. 
and precedent, it was, there was no guidance at all. So some judges uh, probably granted RA-type cases, many probably denied them, some might have kept on applying RA. So a sort of confusion and the board was in a difficult position where when the appeals were taken, we really couldn't decide them <laughs> because the Attorney General had directed us to wait to decide the issue until the regulations that never came forward uh, were issued. Then, I, I think in some ways the situation got even worse. After the 2000 election and George W. Bush was elected, the Attorney General was John Ashcroft, and one of the things he did early on was he certified the RA case back to himself, but he didn't decide the case either. When Ashcroft left, I think he returned it to the board. You probably know uh, domestic violence is a, a huge issue in this country, has been for some time, and it crosses party lines. He found that he was getting probably pushed by various groups of Republicans, but not in the same direction. Saga of RA. Now, so, R go ahead. RA was supposed to decide how immigration judges would rule on domestic violence cases. So what did immigration judges do? Whatever, they, whatever they felt like doing for, for at least for a while. Now, at some point in the saga of RA, there, there was a happy ending at least for RA. I think uh, my recollection is Ashcroft left and had still not decided RA. So he kicked the matter back to the board. When the Obama administration took over, lo and behold, David Martin reappeared. Uh, the, the RA case had been returned actually to the uh, immigration judge for further proceedings and at that level the government agreed to an asylum grant, but it wasn't a pre it was a non-published decision that just disposed of her case. So then there was no test case at all, and I think another case came before the board. This was after I was off the board, and there was a famous document called the Martin Brief, in which then, now it was DHS instead of INS, was prepared to recognize domestic violence as a particular, as a ground of, uh, for granting asylum under the particular social group category, but it set forth some very detailed uh, criteria for when they thought uh, domestic violence could, could be part of a particular social group and when uh, it couldn't. And they, of course, they also emphasized that there, the, somebody had to meet the credibility and the nexus and all the other requirements. What happened is because there was no precedent at that time, the board, I think, had, had asked for briefs but hadn't decided the issue, so it was sitting again. The private bar started citing the, more, the Martin brief as essentially what the rule, uh, citing it to the immigration court. And in Arlington, where I was, the chief counsel's office agreed. They, they applied the Martin brief, as did most of the judges. So uh, in Arlington, we sort of adopted 
the Martin brief as the uh, quasi-precedent. <laughs> it was, a, I think, a bygone day when there was, at least in Arlington, there was quite a bit of cooperation between the chief counsel's office and uh, the private bar to move certain kinds of cases along. Finally, in 2014, the board issued the ARCG, I call it ARCG opinion. Uh, well, no, they basically, that was the case in which, and I think David Martin was back at UVA by then. Uh, it was, I think the, I think the case in which David Martin had filed the Martin brief had actually also washed out it had, on some other ground, maybe it had been uh, granted on some other ground. And there was a new test case, this one was ARCG, but the government uh, once again, under the Obama administration, took a position that uh, they asked the board to recognize uh, domestic violence. They did not oppose a, uh, a recognition of at least certain categories of domestic violence as sufficient for an asylum grant. So, so faced, I think, it had sort of circled around till we were in a similar position as in Kasinga where there really wasn't much of a case or controversy left where the parties had basically agreed and at that point the board eventually uh, went along. Why it took them so many years after uh, the government had basically dropped their opposition uh, to domestic violence grants back at the beginning of the Obama administration, uh, I could only guess at that, but uh, but I thought RG, ARCG didn't actually grant the application. It, it said it could be granted under these circumstances, but it remanded for further fact findings, which I think uh, it made it a weaker decision and that it didn't have a disposition. And of course, then it gave rise, I think, in some offices, now in Arlington, I, I think RG didn't cause a problem, but I, I've heard that some places uh, judges wanted to limit uh, the ruling to the specific facts at issue. You know, there had to be a valid marriage. It had to be a particular country uh, at issue in, in ARCG. So, it wasn't the strong, I don't think it was as strong a statement in favor of protection as Kasinga, but it did help a lot of people, and it's basically been accepted uh, and applied. So, uh, so that's sort of, but now it seems like the, uh, the saga never ends, because now it seems like uh, after everything apparently had been put to bed and uh, judges you know, most judges were applying ARCG, ARCG. Uh, I don't, you know, the courts haven't had any problem with it. All of a sudden, Jeff Sessions has made it an issue again. Uh, and certainly, I think if he overrules matter of ARCG, we'll be right back. And I, I don't expect the uh, immigration bar to take that lightly. Uh, particularly since ARCG is a pretty well-established precedent now. It, it, it uh, threatens the lives of many women. 
so I, I expect this would be uh, relitigated over and over again, and uh, I'm sure that at least some courts will it will uh, come down in favor of domestic violence victims, uh, and it doesn't appear to me that Congress is likely to uh, resolve this with any statutory directions uh, anytime soon. So, it, to me, Marika, it seems like a problem, a difficult problem had finally been solved in the area of immigration, and we were proceeding along using and building on ARCG, and now Jeff Sessions has more or less out of the blue restarted a controversy uh, that had been settled four years ago, uh, and, and that it had been the product of a a, a long protracted uh, legal struggle. I'm sure that if you asked almost any immigration expert, uh, nobody would have put uh, the need to re-examine uh, ARCG in the top 25 issues <laughs> facing the immigration courts these days. I mean, with uh, with backlogs, with uh, people forced to appear without attorneys, with courts in uh, detention centers where uh, standards are, uh, hearing standards are uh, substandard, where it really you're getting substandard justice, with problems with uh, televideo hearings, uh, the board being criticized by many of the courts of appeals for sloppy work, uh, not getting Chevron deference. I, I don't think anybody except Sessions and a few extreme restrictionists would have thought that restarting the uh, domestic violence controversy and re-examining ARCG made any sense right now. Paul, you don't seem to have the attitude that dissent was necessarily something negative. More so, it's something that is kind of just a product of the time and the topic being discussed. But you have talked about it before a bit more, where others view dissent as something very negative. So why did people on the board or in government believe dissent was something they should avoid? Well, it's a difficult question. And I suppose some of it has to do with my history. When I came to the board, there was a philosophical divide, and the then chairman, my mentor, Maury Roberts, Chairman Roberts, was often in dissent. He and board member Louisa Wilson, who was another one of my mentors. And he was right, I thought, on a lot of his dissents. He was, he was one of the leading authorities in immigration law. Then how could it be a bad thing? But I, I guess in the interim time, the chairman, after Maury Roberts served Dave Milholland, who was also a friend of mine. I think going back, I think there's no published decision in several decades of being chairman in which Chairman Milholland dissented. He, he always voted with the majority. So obviously his theory was as the leader, you never wanted to be perceived as being out of step with the organization. 
And I think that some people saw dissent as potentially dangerous to the organization. Board members often came from civil service government backgrounds. Normally in a civil service job, like when I was general counsel or act, deputy general counsel, acting general counsel. I mean, Mike and I might have a knockdown, drag out battle about some legal position with the staff participating. But once Mike made a decision, you know, I supported his decision and I did my best to argue in favor of it. And normally the debate was internal, but once you took external positions, you lined up with the organizational position. And I think that's what most people were used to. So in that kind of mindset, I think that taking a public position against the organization's position seems almost disloyal to the organization or undermining the organization, particularly when it's the chairman taking that position. Although Maury Roberts had dissented quite a bit. By the time I got there, that was a quarter century in the past. There wasn't any recent history of a chairman publicly dissenting against the positions of the agency. And I think there was suspicion probably since Many of my dissents found me joined with board member Lori Rosenberg, who came in from outside government. And I think there was probably a perception that Lori didn't have the same institutional loyalty that others had, and that she was actually trying to encourage people to challenge some of the board's positions, and that I was assisting in this by agreeing with her dissenting opinion. So I, I think there was quite a bit of resentment of the role of dissent. Right. You actually mentioned something Chairman Mulholland used to say, uh, no matter how I feel on a case, I can't make it look like I don't control the board by being in the minority. Yeah, whether that was a quote or a, a, a paraphrase, but I definitely think that his viewpoint was it was bad for the chairman's leadership ever to be perceived to be in the minority and not able to persuade his colleagues. It made the chairman look weak, not in control. So I think that was a quite a bit different philosophy. I, I saw dissent as just you know part of the process. I didn't view the job of chairman as as producing unanimity in every case. In fact, I, I think you can argue that if you have too much unanimity, then people really aren't thinking things through very carefully. I mean, this is one of the most controversial areas in American law. Recently, we had a Supreme Court decision five to four. We have a case that was argued just recently about the travel ban at the Supreme Court. Everybody thinks that's going to come out five to four. So unanimity isn't necessarily a requirement on a collegial body. And even the Chief Justice of the United States sometimes speaks out in dissent when he doesn't agree with what his colleagues are doing. So I view it from more of a judicial standpoint that it's just part of the system, uh, not that it's some sort of administrative failure. Sometimes when I went to the judges' conference, I'd get a hard time from some of the judges. I'd give a presentation every year on all the board's precedents. And sometimes people would give me a hard time about why all the dissents. I'd say, you know, too many well, dissents. Well, they'd about that. Well, they'd say, uh, you know, you're confusing us. And I'd say, if you don't want to be confused, you know, by debate, then just read down as far as the end of the majority opinion. You can take off the rest of it and just 
Keep the majority opinion if that's what you want to do. That's all that's really binding on you. But if you're interested in knowing what some of the other arguments are or learning something about the law development, then you might want to read the dissenting opinions also. And to be honest about it, I think even now you can see that a number of the points that we were raising in dissent, particularly the criticisms the dissenters consistently made of the way board members were making credibility decisions, actually have found favor with the courts of appeals, have found fault with some of the criteria used by judges and the board to make adverse credibility findings appeared to be not really justified by the record as a whole. So somebody once said virtually every good idea in human history started as a dissenting opinion and eventually worked its way into the majority opinion, starting with whether the world is round or flat. I, I always used to say just because I didn't have the votes didn't mean I wasn't right. It just meant I didn't have the votes. Right, it just means you didn't have the votes. So I'm wondering if people's opinions had anything to do with their career histories. I know the board has a reputation for hiring people from government, often people who have been working in government for a really long time, which you've said before is a benefit because people come in, they know the system, they know the ropes, and they already know pretty much how bureaucracy works. But do you think people with government backgrounds were also more likely to take the government's position on issues, even though board members are supposed to be impartial? Well, I think uh, where people have worked in government for their entire careers, they tend to get very possessive about their organization and the organization's goals and the organization's survival, that they tend to identify their future and their well-being with that of the organization. And it becomes very important that the organization be seen in a good light. And generally, being known as the squeaky wheel or dissenting against something the organization's doing isn't perceived as a way to help the organization be seen in a favorable light. I Sometimes I think of it when we become government employees, we take an oath to uphold the Constitution, but I think after time, sometimes people sort of sub in the government agency or organization they work for, for the Constitution, and the goal really becomes to uh, perpetuate the institution or to uh, support the institution, not to rock the boat in a way that would threaten the institution's survival. The problem is, in an area like immigration, which as you know is one of the most controversial areas of American law, has been for some time, there's a great deal of difference of opinion and obviously speaking out for a non-majority position or a dissenting opinion could be institutionally threatening. It, it could draw attention to the institution that people don't want. It could draw criticism. And in a judicial job where you really don't have life tenure, you serve at the pleasure of the Attorney General, I suppose it could lead you to be reassigned. I, I think that sometimes if you have too many government people, the institutional preservation overcomes the concern with the rights of the individuals whom the institution serves, 
or the Constitution that we're supposed to be upholding by ensuring everybody gets uh, due process and fairness. So I think that's a, a downside. I, I, the best government organizations probably have a mixture of people who have been with the organization and have institutional history, institutional knowledge, and individuals who come in from other backgrounds and who can sometimes shed light on a problem that just looking at it internally, you're not going to see it. Was there any sort of difference in outlook in their role as board members? Was there a difference in the way people from government and people who came from outside of government saw it? I mean, I, I once had a, uh, one of my colleagues more or less express it to me, look, the, our job here is really to preserve the attorney general's alternatives. If we take a, an overly broad view of the law, then that could create a problem for the attorney general. If we take a narrower view of the law, then that's easier for the attorney general to defend. And after all, if the attorney general thinks we're being too narrow, he or she can always uh, overrule us or promulgate a regulation to be more generous. But somebody's going to take a more generous view, you want that to be the attorney general and the policy officials, not bureaucrats at uh, the Board of Immigration Appeals. And that by, uh, if the board takes an overly generous view, you know, takes overly generous views of statutes, that that makes it very hard, much harder for the Department of Justice to defend them, and it, it could infringe on the Attorney General's uh, litigating positions. And as delegates of the Attorney General, uh, one of our functions is to preserve the Attorney General's authority and option under uh, the immigration laws. Now, I don't think that's really, to me, that really wasn't how the job was supposed to be defined, and I didn't view my job as preserving uh, Janet Reno's or any Attorney General's options under the immigration law. My obligation was to uh, try and get the law, you know, exercise my expertise, my judgment, try and get the law right. I suppose in a way it's a little bit reminiscent of some of the arguments that are being made, made now about the special counsel. You know, the, uh, is a special counsel supposed to be controlled by department officials or is a special counsel supposed to be calling the shots as he or she sees them, how independent is a special counsel supposed to be? And I think there was probably some feeling among some board members that regardless of what the position description said, uh, you couldn't really be a free agent in the Department of Justice. But you didn't want to be rocking the boat or way out of line. I mean, there may be issues where you could deviate a little bit. If there were going to be major changes, you wanted the Attorney General to make those and then you implemented them. You didn't want to be perceived as telling the Attorney General how they should interpret the law. So once people became board members and therefore government officials, they just kind of fell in line with the government opinion and were motivated more by what would make their boss happy? Well, I don't say, I think that's, I mean, I think everybody had a sense of fairness, but everybody's sense of fairness is a little bit 
different, not to make it sound otherwise, there were people on the board who were just honest, you know, just like there are justices on the Supreme Court who were strict constructionists or conservatives. There were people who just had a conservative philosophy of the law. They thought statutes should be interpreted quite literally. So there were traditional conservatives and traditional liberal philosophies. All right, yeah, that's fair. No, that's you know, it all seemed to me that some board members really wanted to be on the winning side. And you could tell that they weren't when they're Which is used. crazy that there were sides, because it's a legal court and there wasn't supposed to be sides. Right. Well, I think that's what Laurie Rosenberg said at one point, but I think it did get competitive at some point. I think that legal arguments go back to moot court. I suppose it does get competitive. And I felt there were some board members who, when they're positions weren't adopted by the en banc, sort of softened or changed their positions because they felt uncomfortable being out of sync with the majority. There were other board members who, when their positions weren't adopted, they just reinforced their view that their colleagues were wrong and they were right all the more. I mean, for example, a lot of the, the en banc cases generally arose from split panel opinions on which on a three-member panel one board member had dissented from the views of the other two board members no no but i mean many times i I think what a lot of what went in bonk were things that where the panels were not unanimous and the dissenting board member said i think that what the majority wants to do here is out of line with board precedent and I'm going to take, I would like the en banc board to have a discussion and, you know, to agree with me and reverse my colleagues' erroneous position here. And of course, you couldn't force it to en banc. You had to get a majority of the board to get an en banc discussion. I think there were some board members who, if they lost the en banc discussion changed their view and, and went along with the, the majority who weren't really comfortable being, for the most part, outside the group. There were other board members who I think when they lost at the en banc, whether it was a, became a precedent or it was just sent back to the panel, really didn't change their position much at all. You know, they didn't appear to be bothered by not being part of the majority. And that indeed was how most of the precedents arose. Most of the precedents arose from cases that were what I would call panel splits. And that probably explains why there were so many dissenting opinions in the published cases during the time I was chairman, because most of what we were looking at in Bank was something that a panel had split on. So... So in a way, the en banc process was a way by which the majority of the board could control deviant views on the panel and, you know, on the positive side, I suppose, achieve some uniformity by requiring everybody to be on the same page on some recurring issues. Mm. So sometimes uniformity is the goal. Okay, well, that was a lot of information for one episode. So do you think you could wrap us up uh, by giving a summary of the lessons to be learned from your time, your mistakes, and your successes as chairman of the BIA? Well, we need an independent immigration court system. As chairman, I tried to make 
the board function as an independent court. And I think I'd have to say that from that standpoint, it's been a failure. I don't think anybody outside the board and probably even the board members would say that the board is now functioning as an independent court. So I just don't think it's going to be achievable in the Department of Justice. Immigration is too controversial. There's too much political influence and it's too hard for administrative judges who work for a cabinet official to maintain true judicial independence. So I think we do need an independent immigration court structure where judges perform judicial functions and aren't looking over their shoulders at the expectations of political officials and administration priority programs. With independence, I think that over time, both the board and the immigration judges would feel much freer to come up with positions that don't necessarily adhere to the party line, to read ambiguous statutes in favor of the respondent or the individual, not always in favor of the government, and to base their rulings on the Constitution, fundamental fairness, and the best view of the law, not necessarily the view that's most likely to be good for institutional or personal survival. Constitution over institution? Yes, that's a wonderful way of saying it, and I, I don't think that's happening right now. Thank you, Marika. So what's tomorrow? What's our next topic?